Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. JPay, a vendor that provides tablets and other services to incarcerated individuals in New York prisons, has reached an agreement after State Attorney General Leticia James found that many of the company's devices did not work and inmates were not refunded when they could not download music and videos they purchased. An investigation began after the Attorney General's office received complaints from incarcerated individuals about the tablets. JPay has been providing free tablets to incarcerated individuals in state correctional facilities since 2018. According to the complaints, the tablets either arrived later than scheduled, had defects, or were not delivered. With a functioning tablet, an incarcerated individual can use it to buy movies and music. The devices are also equipped with a messaging system that incarcerated individuals can use to communicate with family and friends. The Attorney General's office found that if any of the services did not work properly, JPay failed to refund the incarcerated individuals or provide technical support. The agreement between the Attorney General and JPay requires the company to provide 100 digital stamps to every incarcerated individual housed in a state prison, a value of $500,000, and pay $50,000 in penalties. Digital stamps are used to pay for messages sent between incarcerated individuals and their approved contacts, such as family members. December 17th earlier this month marked two years since the passing of Russell Maroon Schultz. He was a founding member of the Black Unity Council, a former member of the Black Panther Party, and a soldier in the Black Liberation Army. After twice escaping from prison and twice being recaptured, Schultz was held in solitary confinement for more than 22 years. This solitary confinement was controversial. While Schultz had successfully escaped twice, he actually had an excellent record of behavior within the prison itself. Advocates in Schultz himself argued that his extended solitary confinement reflected the personal offense taken by prison officials, who were essentially embarrassed both by his ease in escaping and his cutting-edge work on black radical theory and practice. Schultz is remembered today as, among other things, a well-respected author. One famous essay, The Dragon and the Hydra, is widely available online. Listeners interested in honoring the anniversary of Schultz's passing, but unfamiliar with his work, may find this essay insightful, short, and accessible as a history of one important aspect of revolutionary organizing. Now we'll share a previously aired interview with Schultz, recorded on August 15, 1996, at State Correctional Institution Green in Pennsylvania. The interview was originally aired on the People's Video Network and was conducted by Daruba bin Wahad. So in light of the fact that I was a model prisoner, I wanted to know, the courts wanted to know, my relatives wanted to know, people was concerned about me wanted to know, how come I could not be released from the isolation? And I was told each time that each institution, that there was no institution in the whole state system that they felt within their judgment that would be safe for me, but they was building a new institution, State Correctional Institution in Green. And once this place was built shortly afterwards, I came in January 95, was the understanding if you from the other institutions that I would be released, assuming that I maintained my good you know, yeah. behavior record. Have you applied to be released to, um, in general, did you make I've applied to be released 
the general population each of my 30-day reviews. They review me every 30 days. And each 30-day review that I attend, and I attend most of them, I ask the same thing for the record. For allowing me to be released. However, on my first review that I came here, I asked to be released. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I would never be released here. At which time I brought up. Who told you, know, you that? I was told that by the deputy warden, Barnum. He's the deputy warden of operations or something? Yeah, he's the deputy warden of operations, mainly the top security man outside of the superintendent or the warden. Do you, is, is that unusual? Uh, that an inmate, that a, that a prisoner is told that they would never be released despite the fact that the, that the, the system, the Department of Corrections has a policy requiring objective review of, of, of the uh, inmate status. And, but he's told from the onset that this is basically a formality and that he's never going to be released. Is that, is that unusual? Are there other inmates that are told that? Well, it's not unusual to me because I've heard a little bit of everything since I've been in prison. But for purposes of the law, it's highly unusual because even that is outside of the right parameters that they're given by all the laws and, the, and, and all the regulations that I'm familiar with. That well, there's know, no such thing as forever thing with any type of uh, in any status within the correctional system. Well, you know, people have the impression that in the United States that the prison system is run based on some type of legal criteria that the uh, employees of the prison system are constrained by rules, that there's regulations that inmates must follow, and that if inmates follow the necessary rules, they're afforded certain privileges and certain concessions. If they don't, they're punished. And you're, what you're saying, and what we hear you, what we hear you saying, is that in effect, except for the escape attempts that you have, which all prisons are designed to thwart, uh, and that's the nature of prisons to thwart escape attempts. That aside from that, you've been a model prisoner, but yet here you are in the maximum control unit within a maxi-maxi prison, handcuffed in a non-contact cage, uh, based on your history in this system and not on your actual conduct. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely the case. Do you think that's connected to uh, to your politics and to why you came to prison for the Well, not only is it connected to my politics, but it goes a little beyond that. Uh, in fact, uh, I have been in the prisons with the top administrators of this prison when they weren't top administrators. In other words, I've seen them come up through the ranks because I've been here as long as most of them, you know, and more than, as long as any of them, more than most of them. Let's just put it that way. And formerly, I've had contact with some of these top administrators. And in fact, I've had literally bodily, you know, uh, contact with some of these administrations. In fact, I escaped from one penitentiary and one of the administrators, uh, I was holding him hostage for a while. I didn't do any harm to him. I just didn't want him to get in the way of my attempt to leave the institution. Well, uh, at that time, he was not an administrator. You know, he was, he was a low-ranking staff member. However, he's moved up through the ranks, and now he's an administrator. Well, I'm almost positive that this weighs quite a bit on determining whether or not uh, he would ever allow me in the population. In fact, the party that I said told me I would never be released, Deputy Barnett, he is the individual that uh, in 1977, um, when I escaped from the institution, uh, you know, within the escape, uh, him and another number of other guards 
were taken hostage and they was put in a room. None of them was harmed. But when I come up here, it seemed like to me, when I discovered that he was the deputy, I seen a conflict of interest there, but it, they got me hostage now where I had them hostage for about five minutes. So people that have passed, yeah. so that passed right. on, your, on, on uh, monthly on your status are people that you've had direct uh, uh, relationships with, and, uh, and, and obviously there's a conflict of interest there. Right. What, what, what I wanted to ask you, though, was the status of your case now. Uh, you've been in jail um, uh, over two and a half decades. What is the status of your case now? The status of my case is that I'm serving two life sentences, uh, 19 and a half to 38 years, 5 to 10, 1 to 2, and 3 and a half to 7. And all of these are running consecutive, which means that I have to finish each one, each sentence before I would begin another one. In Pennsylvania, life is natural life. There's no years on life. The only way you can get rid of a life sentence within Pennsylvania, you have to be commuted. You have to get a commutation that's got to be signed directly from the government. Uh, since I've been in this uh, system in this time, uh, outside of some juvenile years where I was in juvenile institutions, the commutations that were given out does not amount to my knowledge to a hundred prisoners. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of lifers over this 20 some years. So the commutation as a general rule is not really something that a life prisoner can look forward to. I don't know what the future holds. Because as I say, when I first come to prison, it was only 5,000 prisoners. And it was a relative smaller percentage of lifers then. Now there's thousands and thousands of lifers because there's thousands of more prisoners. So I don't know whether or not that, you know, these prisoners will be offered commutation. And as far as myself, I doubt very seriously whether I have any type of chance for any type of commutation from this government who happens to be one of those supposedly tough on crime political governments or any other governor for the simple reason that my case originally is in relationship to the killing of a Philadelphia policeman. And it's highly unlikely in my way of thinking that they would release anybody on commutation who has got anything to do you know, with the killing of, of the laws. So my two lives and my other um, years that I got, uh, although I constantly fight, and I've been fighting in 20 some years, uh, I doubt very seriously whether there's any possibility of me ever leaving this system through the court system. Well, you know, now, today, the issue of police brutality and, uh, and the treatment of, uh, of national minorities by the police uh, are once again in the news and it's becoming an issue. Uh, and like you said, you were convicted of, 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 of a police uh, murder. Uh, do you think that your, your involvement in the Black Panther party was the reason why you were convicted of this, as opposed to concrete evidence that you had anything to do with this? Well, possibly. Probably. I have numerous FBI files that I received through the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act that says right on the face of them that my case was targeted specifically by the then, uh, you know, ahead of the FBI, Jay my case, uh, I was mentioned by name. I have at least close to 800, 800 pages of these files 
and I could probably get thousands of pages, but I would not ever allow access to them without the money, and I don't have the money to buy them. But I could see crystal clear by the file that I got that I was absolutely targeted by the Department of Justice through its Federal Bureau of Investigation director to give specific hands-on direction as to what should be done with my case. So the reason I say possibly is because I don't know just what all was done in relationship to my case and what you know my defense that I put forward. I don't know because I don't have access to these documents. But what I do have is people who, in other words, I don't have any federal charges, period. I never did have any federal charges. However, the director of the FBI, he got involved, of course, in my case because I was being sought on unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which is a federal case. But as soon as I was captured, that was dropped. So nominally, there was not supposed to be any type of uh, federal input. Nevertheless, I got these files where it shows that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, through its director, was into my case all the way up to, I don't know how far it goes, but it goes beyond the point where I was arrested and I was being tried. So I don't know what's there. Are you familiar with um, with the Federal Bureau of Investigations program called uh, PRISAC, Prison Activist Program? Absolutely. Um, do you know that this was a national program in which they trained uh, state and local law I couldn't say specific whether I was or not because I would have to have some documents to corroborate my ideas. But I do know this. I know that since the first day I've ever come in this system, outside of my attempting to liberate myself and to go home by escape and any other means, I have always been treated differently, especially to give, you, to, give you, to give you a perfect example. In 1989, I was sitting in the State Correctional Institution in Dallas, which is about 300 and some odd miles northeast of here. Uh, I was in lockup at that time also because I was sent there from another institution, allegedly because the other institution was doing some repairs. And once I got there, I was locked up because the institution allegedly could not contain uh, my type of person. I was supposed to be too much of a escape, risk. you know, escape risk. So I was pigeonholed into this institution until the other institution, which was a maximum security, could finish its repairs. That was in 1984. However, by 1989, after being in lockup at that institution for that reason, uh, a rebellion so-called riot happened at the, at the Camp Hill Institution, which is another institution hundreds of miles away. It's an institution that I had been at maybe uh, three weeks of my entire life, and I was only there just for a few minutes, maybe 10 years prior to that to go to court. Um, while sitting in the State Correctional Institution in Dallas, locked up in this whole Basically, you know, the same way that I am now, only being allowed out of my, you know, cell for exercise and to go to the shower. Uh, I was taken by the United States Marshals along with the prison guards out of there. Right after this riot or rebellion occurred at Camp Hill, without any type of warning, without any type of rationale, without anything, they came and got me and they handcuffed me and they suited me up and they took me to the United States Penitentiary at Lewisburg. 
at which time they classified me to go to the United States Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. Now, and I asked them why would I go to this Marion, Illinois, and I was told at that time by the classification board at Lewisburg, the federal penitentiary now, that I had been part of an arena leader of the riots that just occurred in Camp Hill. And of course, I told them that I hadn't been at Camp Hill and I, all they had to do was check the records and whatnot. And they said they had the records. And I was in these riots, and therefore, I was going to marry But in the meantime, I was going to the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, in order to await a spot at Marriott. So I was put on a plane, I was flew all around the country. Eventually, I got to Leavenworth. Once I got to Leavenworth, I was given this same rationale. I was locked up in Leavenworth. In the meantime, I was able to contact my relatives and some other people um, who, was, who was willing to look into the record. Once they looked into the record and they was able to retrieve the records themselves, they forwarded the records to the United States Penitentiary and Leavenworth, proving that I was not at Camp Hill. In fact, I was at Dallas, and it destroyed their rationale about forwarding me to Marion, so they was forced to release me into the general population. That told me that somebody within the prison system was doing what I had seen them do on other occasions, which was to monitor me wherever I'm at. And irregardless of whether I'm doing rule infractions or whatever I'm doing, if there's any way that they could manipulate me into another situation, worse or whatever the case is, they would do it. Because again, I was hundreds of miles away from so, this. So does Pennsylvania have an interstate contract agreement with the They Pennsylvania? absolutely do. And, and so you were in federal custody for a period of time? I was in the federal custody for close to a year and a half. And then they transferred you back to- And then they transferred me back out of the federal custody because the funny thing happened when I was in the federal custody. Once they found out, and I got the documents, that they weren't lying. I was told that the documents said that I did all this, said that I was in the camp field and all this sort of crap. Uh, so they were operating off of these documents. At least they had documents to say that they was operating off. However, um, their hand was forced behind this exposure that I was manipulated there under false pretenses. So they allowed me into the general population, which I stayed, which is the first time I've been in the general population since 1983. You didn't have any trouble while you were in general? I had absolutely no trouble at all. In fact, I was one of them so-called quote-unquote model prisoners, which meant that I went to school, I went to work, I'm minding my business. So this is basically the only time you've been in general population was when they tried to get rid of you out of the state system and send you to the feds, and the feds found out that they were uh, bamboozled by the yes. state, and they put you in general population, Correct. and then the state took you back. And then the state, after about a year and a half, uh, I don't know, they called for me back, and they put me on another plane, they missed you. and they returned me. So as soon as I was returned, I was immediately put back into put back in the hole. Attempt to 
do something positive on the part of the prisoners. Because as I stated, I've become a pretty compass jailhouse lawyer, not because I thought that this would ever have me released from the prison system, because I don't really think it will. But I've become a compass jailhouse lawyer because I've wanted, I, I see that in order for me to stop the worst abuses that were occurring with myself and the other men who I was in sympathy with in the institution, I had to be able to put the long arm of the law on the people who were breaking the law. So I learned the law just specifically for that reason. So I'm a threat because not only am I um, within certain people's minds a potential escape risk, but I am also a threat because I've been, uh, I've come across as one who would not tolerate under no circumstances someone going against things that I know they're not supposed to go against. We're all supposed to go by the same rules. So there's sort of a leveling here. Although I'm a prisoner here, I got rules and you got rules too. So you follow the rules and I'll follow the rules. And then outside of that, we'll pursue whatever else we're pursuing. I'll pursue to try to you know, uh, uh, be released from prison or to get out of prison and you pursue trying to keep me here and to do your job. But don't overstep them bounds because if you do, I'm going to put the whole weight of the law on you. So that's a threat to them because they like to step, overstep the bounds in the cases where they know and in the cases where they don't know, then they overstep the bounds to ignorance. So, so it's obvious that, um, that unless there's some type of public scrutiny around, um, around the treatment uh, that you are going through and other political prisoners are going through, not much is going to be done about it. Not, 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 nothing that I know of. As you, what you see is what you get. Yeah. And you're getting a little more than what is the reality because I said I'm usually not even in these type of clothing. This is the first time I've seen a shirt and a pair of pants since I've Yeah, I was getting ready to say, how did you press these? That shirt looks pretty sharp. Not only this, I don't even wear shirts and pants. I wear a canvas jumpsuit with, with, with blue lines and a white background and it looked like something out of one of those concentration camps uh, in Nazi Germany. It's <laughs> the first time I've seen anything like this. I'm assuming this is for the cameras and whatnot. I can't assume it's for anything else because I've never given access to that. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right about that. You know, um, you know in, in, in trying to do the work around political prisoners, one of the things that, one of the problems that we encounter again and again um, is the incredulous. Uh, 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 attitude that people have when we tell them about cases like yours, where brothers and sisters, brothers who have been in prison over 25 years um, in the United States. Uh, most people don't have a history, understanding of this history, and they don't have an understanding that the political prisoners exist. I think that that's beginning to change somewhat. In, in, in your view, what is it that you think um, uh, people should be doing and need to be doing around uh, cases like yours and um, cases like Maria's and cases like the New York Three. What is it you think that people out here should be trying to do? Well, my concern specifically in that arena is this. I'm not really concerned about myself or people like me for the simple reason that we collectively within this prison system and our overall communities within the country and the country in general, 
has much more pressing prison, uh, problems when it comes to prison than problems like mine. Of course, I'm being brutalized or whatnot, century and perceptual deprivation just by being kept within a box about the size of this room here for years on end. However, we have much, much more pressing situations in mind. We have the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. If our communities, if the, if, if, if the people who are aware of this, the people who are not aware of this, if something, if something is really not done in his case, uh, I suspect that the state will kill him in the not too distant future. Umiya Abu-Jamal has successfully exposed so, much, so many inconsistencies about the criminal justice system and about the overall uh, uh, situation that people find themselves in contact with the criminal justice system, which is uh, the blacks, other ethnics, and the, and the poor people, that he has become an extreme threat to the overall system. So a person like Mumia, he's in such, we're like in a giant bullseye, and he's in the center. And I'm way, I'm about eight rungs way out there someplace. Wow. So everybody's trying to get a bullseye. So they try to get people like him. Even outside of him, you have other people who I'm more concerned about personally before you get to people like me. And that's other people all around the country who are on death row. And these are men who I have to extrapolate from my own knowledge and my own experiences within this system where I've been locked up on death rows for years at a time with other men because of my security status, although I never had the death row. I've been locked up on death row with men that I know for a fact had no business being on death row, if nothing else, that some of these men were totally mentally incompetent, although I'm not any type of doctor and don't hold myself out to be one, but I'm not no fool either. And I can see that no other men would have a reason to destroy these men because these men were not responsible for themselves, at least at that time. Not at the time of the crime, but at a possible time that they might possibly be destroyed by, you know, uh, capital punishment. These men are still within these institutions, within this Pennsylvania state system. I've been on death row with scores of men who are still on death row now throughout the state, many of them within this institution. But I know for a fact some of them were mentally incompetent, according to the law. Some other ones, it seemed highly likely to me that it's a good possibility that they did not receive fair trials. Them and the people who's on, on death row in general within the country, those are the type of people that I'm more concerned with before you get to a case like me, because I got a lot more breathing room than they do. I got a lot more time to think, to plan, and to attempt to use my own type of devices and rely on the source of universal power to bring some to bring something force that I'm not aware of to change the balance of things before things get to me. I'm not really concerned with myself as much as I'm concerned about these situations. This interview was originally aired on the People's Video Network and was conducted by Daruba bin Wahad. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. If you want to support our work, please visit patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. 
Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. You can also find us on all social media platforms. You can hear our archive of over 300 episodes at kitelineradio.org. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.